James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Testing of your faith. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exhortation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's um, pray one more time. Loving Father, we come to your word now eager to hear from you and there are a thousand things distracting us now. There are burdens and problems in our lives. There are temptations going on in us. And we, we ask, please help us now. Pour your spirit out upon us that we would hear and believe and receive what you have to say to us today. Amen. 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 Now, um, I, I want you to imagine a paradise island, uh, sun, sand, surf. Wouldn't it be nice to be on a paradise island? Wouldn't it be nice to be on a paradise island? Not, a gritty, not gritty, polluted, noisy London, but in a place with no troubles, where you want for nothing, where life is carefree, worry-free, where there's no pain, there's no suffering. Life as we want it. The advertisers lure us with this. The government pressures us uh, so the government is pressured to give us this, isn't it? The lottery promises us a paradise island. And there are Christians and there are churches that will tell us uh, that we can have that now. Money, prosperity, all our sicknesses can be taken away. Yes, we too can have a trouble-free life. Life is a paradise island. But the problem is this. We all know that deep down, life will not be a paradise island because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. We realize as we go on in life that life is not trouble-free or problem-free. Um, it's something you can observe you know, just as you get older. Um, when you are younger, you, 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 you can't ever imagine yourself really getting sick or developing wrinkles or losing your hair. But it will happen. It will happen. And people will, uh, will have troubles, many problems. People will get sick. People will die. And the Bible makes it very clear that we live in a world of suffering, a world of pain. In Acts chapter 14, when the, the apostolic team are going around to visit um, these um, newly planted churches, they, um, uh, they, do, they do this ministry when they, uh, when they uh, visit. When they preach the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulations. That's, that's the, um, you know, if you were going to go back and do a kind of discipleship 
a course for new believers, what would you give them? What would you, what would you tell them about? Well, Paul tells them that they must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Life is not a paradise island. And we need to know that because our culture uh, deludes us about this. Well, the book of James agrees with this. It is um, written to believers, to Christians who were living in a difficult situation. It was written by one of the the famous church leaders uh, in the early church, James, the brother of Jesus, who would later himself be martyred. Um, Now, we're not definite about who it's written to. It's not like Philippians or Colossians. You can identify the place and the city. Um, It simply says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, those have been scattered amongst the nations. Uh, It is alluding, therefore, to the Old Testament tribes of Israel. and, and this has made most commentators think that it is likely written to Jewish believers who've had to leave their home country. They've been dispersed. They've been scattered amongst the nations. So these may well be believers who were scattered through the persecution described in the book of Acts. They're most likely Jewish followers of Christ who've become refugees. And they now live in these... Um, uh, Outside of their home country, they, um, they have small congregations. Most of them are not powerful. They're not wealthy. For these guys, life is not a paradise island. Now, if you read carefully through this chapter, this opening chapter of James, uh, chapter 1, it talks here a lot about trials, temptations, testing. It talks about wisdom. It talks about the gift of God. It, it talks about desire and sin and deception. Let me ask you, where else do we get that kind of language in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Where Adam and Eve turned against God and the world was, became fractured, messed up by sin. The fact, the fact is that James, the book of James is written against the background of a fallen world. We live in the world of Genesis chapter 3. And the point here that James is making is that discipleship is lived out in that kind of a world, in a fallen world, in a world of temptation and trial, a world of persecution, a world where we battle to trust God, a world of social inequalities and injustice, a world of war crimes and invasions, a world where false wisdom is rampant. This is the world of the book of James. And it is our world too. This is the world where we do our discipleship. And so James's call is to live as authentic Christians, as authentic believers in that kind of a world. It is a call away from double-mindedness. It is a call to lives of integrity, to be wholehearted, to be single-minded in our devotion to the Lord to practice what we say we actually believe. So this book, it is great for everyone, whether you are a young believer or a seasoned believer, whether you've been a Christian for six weeks or for 60 years. You never really get beyond these issues. Now we're going to look at verses 1 to 11, and we've got three headings this morning, how to face trials, how to get wisdom, and how to think about wealth. Firstly, then, how to face trials, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now what happens to, to us uh, in our lives often feels like the luck of the draw, doesn't it? Do you remember those um, high winds and storms uh, about a month ago, six weeks ago? Where in the middle of that, the fence blew off the roof of our church straight down onto the street below uh, where there were some shops. And it just missed someone. They felt lucky. I felt lucky. And we all breathed a sigh of relief and said, and you will know those situations in your life. You know, the near miss in a car or, or on your bike. The child who just misses their eye with the scissors. And we say, I was lucky. You see, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that life does not operate by chance, by the luck of the draw. No, you know, the, the Bible says that all of life is in God's hands. What happens is under God's control. Proverbs 16.33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. To cast a lot is to throw dice. It's basically saying you, you, play, uh, uh, you play with some dice. What comes up is the decision from the Lord. Think of that next time you play Monopoly. The Lord decides. It's in his hands. You see, the world has a purpose, and that purpose is God's purpose. And one of the mysteries in that is that trials and troubles are part of his purpose. They don't just happen. They are there to do something. They have a purpose. Now, I'm not going to try to attempt to explain suffering and the, and the problem of, of evil here. But what I want us to do through these verses is just focus on one of those purposes that God has. See, trials expose us, don't they? Trials expose us. The, verse, the word in verse 2 and verse 12, trial, has that sense of attempting to learn the nature of something, the character of something, through testing it. Think of a court. Think of a trial in court. You, what is going on there? You are attempting to get at the truth of something by process of testing, of cross-examination and evidence. You're attempting to find out something. And in verse 3, it talks here about the testing of faith. In other words, there is a process here of testing the genuineness of something, seeing if it's the real deal. Trials get at who we really are and what we really believe. Because it is only in times of trouble that we see who we really are. We've just gone through a massive global trial, haven't we? A pandemic. And lots of things will have come up to the surface in our lives. We like to cover up who we are, to present a nicer version of who we are. But then, you see, when you get a pain, when you get pain coming into your life, when you get trials and difficulties coming in, into your life, you're no longer able to cover things up. You don't have the resources to, cover, to, to make things look better than what they are. In the middle of trials, who, what I really believe, who I am, comes to the surface. The pretense, the pretense is taken away. The props and the crutches of our lives are swept away. And we are exposed, aren't we? We are revealed. Our character comes out. Have you ever done something you, know, you knew was wrong? And maybe someone challenges you on it. And you say, oh yeah, but I was having a bad day. This was going on. We like to think it was the bad day that made us do what we do. But actually, 
what comes out is the real me. Just the real me without the, kind of, without the makeup, without the uh, fancy dress, without the disguise. The real me is here underneath, and it comes out in the middle of trials. And the point here in these verses is that God uses trials and troubles to change us, to show us who we are, to expose us. And these trials, they develop steadfastness or perseverance. They bring about patience in our lives, steadfastness, long-suffering. Verse 4, that steadfastness or perseverance leads to perfection and maturity and completeness. What is perseverance? Perseverance is basically being the same person in different circumstances. It is, it is easy, isn't it, to, to be different people in different circumstances. When I've run the London Marathon, I was a, a different person at the start of the marathon than by mile 20. I can tell you, I was very different. And you and I, we become different people in different circumstances, don't we? But what makes maturity is sameness. Sameness. The same faith, the same kindness, the same gentleness, the same courage, whatever the circumstances. Can anyone ever really be mature without suffering? Can anyone really become persevering unless they get troubles and difficulties? How do you become persevering? You have to have something to persevere through. If you want to become fit, you've got to run through the marathon. You've got to endure the pain to get to the other side. Let me ask you, do you know anyone who's really mature who hasn't had to endure suffering in their life? I don't know if you've ever seen the, the animated film Wally. It came out a good, good few years ago, uh, in 2008. It's a bit old now. Um, but it, 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 um, it pictures this future world where human beings are living on a big spaceship and they get everything that they want. Every whim is taken care of. They've got robots bringing them Coke and burgers and they float around in these kind of self-moving chairs. They don't have to do anything. And what, is, what happens to human beings in that situation? They become fat, lazy cowards. That's basically what the film uh, depicts human beings as. There's no, because there's no resistance, no struggle, no trial. And so there is no character. You see, suffering brings maturity, doesn't it? This is what these verses are teaching us. Now, it doesn't, this doesn't mean that trials necessarily do that. Because actually, if we look at ourselves, I mean, if we look at ourselves through the pandemic, we can see that actually trials can make us bitter, resentful, they can cause us to grumble, they can, they can make us angry. We can turn in on our problems and think merely about ourselves. So trials don't necessarily do that. But with faith in God, they will have an effect upon my maturity. Now let's go back to the actual command in this verse, verse 2. What does it say? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, that is a pretty shocking command, isn't it? It's saying, have wholehearted, complete joy in the middle of the trials. That is a strange thing to command. It might sound pretty heartless and pretty insensitive. And I guess here, here this morning, there will be people who know awful struggles in their life. People, uh, people who are facing very difficult things. And you will know people who are facing very difficult things. And speaking of joy in that, it's bizarre. I mean, what kind of weirdo thinks that, it, uh, that um, they should be joyful when they are suffering. Well, let's be clear that we're not talking here about being happy about suffering. When, it's, it's not that we are to say, brilliant, my life is full of troubles, hallelujah, wonderful, I'm in pain. We don't have to be happy about the suffering in our life. 
Now, the joy here is in what the suffering leads to, what it produces. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It is producing maturity. There can be a kind of joy when trials come because we know that they are serving our spiritual maturity. They are working our growth into Christ-likeness. And the fact is, you and I, we can't become what God has destined us to be without suffering. We can't become great without suffering. So the joy here, it's not a glib joy, it's not frothy and superficial. If what matters to you is maturity, then the way you look at trials will be different. The temptation is to think that trials will destroy us, but James is actually saying they make us. The temptation is to think that trials are the worst possible end, but James says they're God's mysterious means to the best possible end. Temptation... uh, temptations come to us in the middle of trials. They, they make us feel that, the random, that they are simply random events uh, which bring misery. But James is saying that God makes them servants of our holiness. We're learning here how to face trials in a world that is not a paradise island. That's the first point. Second point, how to get wisdom, verses 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all, that he, in, in all his ways. Wisdom in the Bible is not about being clever, smart, academic, or university educated. Wisdom in the Bible is rather about knowing the will of God and living it out. And this wisdom, according to Scripture, is more precious and more important than anything. Scripture tells us, Proverbs 16, 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold. It is true wealth and prosperity. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 22 to 23. Wisdom will be life for you. You will go on your way in safety and your foot will not stumble. Wisdom is protection and safety. Proverbs 13, 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. Wisdom is life and health. Wisdom is ultimately precious, according to the Bible. Now, in our passage, the word lack uh, connects the maturity spoken of in verse 4 and the wisdom in verse 5. So wisdom is really another way of speaking of spiritual maturity, spiritual completeness. And this maturity is ultimately precious. Parents, tattoo that on your arms. You are constantly pressured to assess your child's success in their life by their exams and their qualifications. And our kids are pressured to assess themselves in exactly that way as well. My son is seven, and he will now be t- he'll be taking his first exams this summer in his, in his state primary school. He is already being assessed in life and by the adults around him on his academic performance. But who will teach him wisdom? Who will teach him to know and fear God? It is my job to teach him that qualifications are not the key to life, that university entrance is not ultimate, but God's wisdom is. The godly disciple seeks wisdom above all. How do we get that wisdom, though? Well, verse 5, we ask. We ask for it. 
One of the stories I have taught my kids, because I want, to, want them to prioritize wisdom, is, uh, is King Solomon. The story of King Solomon. It's a great model for us, isn't it? You, do you remember King Solomon? God came to him after he made him uh, king, and uh, he said, ask me for anything. Think for that for a moment. Think if God comes to you tonight and says, do you know what? You can have anything. Anything. What a privilege. What would you ask for? 1 Kings 3.9 Solomon said, I want wisdom and understanding. And he got it in abundance, together with many other blessings as well. What are you praying for at the moment? What are you praying for for your family? Are you praying? Are you asking God? Later on, James, he will say, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Lots of things we would like, but we don't ask, and so we don't get them. Have you ever asked for wisdom? Probably the people around you would love you to ask for it. <laughs> husbands, ask your wives. Wives, ask your husbands. Parents, ask your kids. Kids, ask your parents. Do you want me to have wisdom? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Make it a priority this week. It can't do you any harm, can it? It can only bless you. Now, you see, God's promise wasn't just given to Solomon, was it? It was given to us as well. Ask, ask anything. Ask and you will receive Ask him. And we're told here that God gives generously to all. If you ask for wisdom, God, God won't tell you off for your self-centeredness. Now he will bless you with incredible wisdom. He will give you maturity and insight. You've got, you've got a promise here that God will make you wise if you ask for it. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't you like to have that? Wouldn't it just be great to be really wise? Wouldn't you just love to be wise? Now in the seeking of God, verses 6 to 8, James stresses the need for wholeheartedness in coming to God. Asking things from God and seeking after God can't be casual. It can't be lackadaisical. It can't be superficial. James paints for us here a picture of a half-hearted person. They're full of doubt. You know, one minute they're here, one minute they're there. They're ebbing and flowing with the tidal currents. They're as rooted as a wave on the beach. This is a person who's blown all over the place. And in verse 8, he calls, calls him the double-minded person. Literally double-souled. They're unstable. She doesn't know who she is. He doesn't know what he wants. They have a divided heart. Sometimes people ask questions, but they don't actually want the answers, do they? They ask for input, but then they can't handle it. I was taught to drive largely by my wife, and we're still married. Uh, many years later. And, you know, I wanted her to teach me. I wanted her to help me. But then I got frustrated and annoyed when she did. I wanted instruction, but then I didn't want it. I was an unstable man, like a wave of the sea tossed by the wind, a double-minded man. And you know what? As a pastor, I see that people get stuck on the fringes of church and on the fringes of faith in Jesus. They're not rejecting, but they're not committing. Maybe that's you today. You know, your Christian life is just, a, it's just casual. It's lackadaisical, superficial. No one would ever want to persecute you because there is nothing to persecute. You're in and out of things, never really committing. And so actually, what is sad about that is that you get none of the blessings of the Christian life through that. You just get all the demands God's blessing is not poured out on the double-minded person. 
But come to God. Ask him today to make you wise. Commit yourself to him. And he will pour blessing on you. He will make you wise. Earnestly seek him. And he will give you all that you ask for. He gives himself to those who are determined, who are focused, who are eager for his wisdom. Approach him with faith and he will bless you. Approach him with a, on a whim and he won't. Don't be a double-minded person today, but get wholeheartedness. Last point, how to think about wealth, verses 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his, in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now these verses are obviously all about wealth and power. Uh, and again, that's a look at wealth and power, not from a human perspective, but from God's perspective. Not giving us human evaluation, but God's evaluation. Now a good chunk of the people that James was writing to were not very wealthy or powerful. They were ordinary people. They were the have-nots. They were the lowly, verse 9. And uh, we've already mentioned the trials in verse 2 and verse 12. We're, we're told later in the letter that they were being persecuted by wealthy, powerful people. So there are lots of have-nots here who are being pushed around by the haves. That's why it talks about the lowly brother, but not the rich brother. And later in James, we read of how these rich people are arrogant, oppressive, taking advantage. So here we have a situation where the powerful are are treading on the powerless. And James encourages and warns here. So human evaluation would say these lowly brothers in verse 9 did not have very much. They didn't have many resources. Um, they, they, um, uh, they didn't have a long list of achievements. They didn't have the world's best CV. They weren't very employable. But James comforts them by reminding them of God's purpose. Because they belong to Christ, they are exalted. Later in chapter 2, verse 5, he says they are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And what he's doing here, he's getting them to think long-term about their situation. He's wanting to see what is coming, what everyone's ultimate destiny uh, will be. They, he says, look, you have already received greatness. You have already received a status way beyond anything you could ever have naturally. They have a true wealth that is better than any bank account. They have a wealth that is recession-proof, robbery-proof, fireproof. No wonder they have to take pride in that. He, talks, he, he, he calls them to boast and brag and show off. I mean, normally we think of boasting as a bad thing, don't we? We shouldn't boast. But here they're commanded to brag to boast of who they have become, what they have in Jesus. The rich and the powerful, though, have no such encouragement. Verse 10 is very sarcastic, and it's counterintuitive. Wealth here is pictured as a beautiful, fragile flower that soon withers. The petals fall off and soon dries up. While the lowly boast of their status, the rich can only boast of what they don't have. If money and power is all they had, then they didn't really have very much. Verse 11, the rich man passes away. In other words, it's not just his money that passes away, but it is that he too passes away. I don't know if you've ever been up to a Highgate Cemetery in North London. It's full of kind of famous graves. Karl Marx is, is, is um, buried up there. And when you walk around, there are some incredible mausoleums built by the rich. Incredible 
ornate, made of marble. Must have cost incredible amounts of money in their time. But you know what? One of the strange things to walk around, they are now just overgrown. Symbols of long dead wealth. They're full of haunting emptiness. No relatives come to care for those mausoleums now. The only people who come are kind of tourists and visitors. No one comes to take care of their graves. Their wealth has disappeared. And the rich and the poor get buried in the same cemetery, even if they have different looking graves. Everyone turns to dust. And what James is getting at, getting at uh, here is the, is the feeling that the, the powerful and rich have that their life lasts forever, that they are invincible. But he says here, in the middle of what they were doing, in the middle of luxury and influence and power, God would deal with them. See, these are powerful revolutionary verses, but they're not here to get the oppressed believers to revolt with pitchforks and send their oppressors to the guillotine. They don't need to, because God is going to do it. God is going to take care of their oppressors. See, these verses, they bring clarity to our minds. They are important for us, because they invert the way we normally think about wealth and power. What we see here is is a reversal of fortunes. They make us think in a different way. They tell us, don't be discouraged nor inflated by your bank account. Don't take your success or your failure too seriously. Rather, only look for your status in that which lasts, that you've died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, you're seated with Christ. If you follow Christ, you believe in Christ, you have an inheritance that cannot spoil or fade. And beware, rich Christians, of that feeling of invincibility that wealth and power can bring. All of us in this room, by global standards, have access to resources and help that many people, most people in our world, can only ever dream of. The homeless guy here on the streets of London has access to health care that a rich person in many other countries could only ever dream of. Some of us are very wealthy by the standard even of our own society as well. Beware a feeling of invincibility. Beware that feeling that you are in control. It will all disappear. And be careful that you don't wither with your money. We must all lose our possessions at some point, but let's not lose ourselves in the process. Let's build our lives on that which lasts and not on that which fades. So what do we see here in James 1? Well, we see that we live out our lives in a fallen world. The world of Genesis 3 is the world of James chapter 1. We live in a broken world, a suffering world, a world where sin is rampant, where believers are opposed. And in in the middle of that, we are called to wholeheartedness, to discipleship. As we face trials, as we look for wisdom, as we navigate the lure of power and wealth, we are to follow God with wholehearted lives. We are to pursue single-minded discipleship. But as we do that, let's be encouraged by the single-minded love and generosity of our Father in heaven. You see, we're unstable, aren't we? We know ourselves. We we have plenty ups and ups and downs. We're blown back and forth. We can feel pretty unstable. But in the middle of that, our Father remains the same. He is the eternally unchanging God. And that word in verse 5 that's translated generous, as it describes God, actually has a kind of sense in the original of a singleness of, of, of intent. It's striking in the very place where James is saying, don't be double-minded. He reminds us that there is no such issue there with God. God is not double-minded. He's not blown with the wind. But he is eternally single-minded in his pursuit and his love for us. 
Verse 17, we read that every good and perfect gift is from him. He is the father of lights. And it says there is no change or variation in him. There isn't us, but there isn't in him. His goodness is constant and secure. What an encouragement. What an encouragement. Our Father in heaven is relentless, focused, and absolute in his love for us. And if we want confirmation of that, look at the cross. But we, there we see God's wholeheartedness, his single-mindedness, his devotion. There we see the ultimate perfect gift from the Father of lights. So our Father is nothing other than absolute committed in absolute faithfulness to us. So as we think about wholeheartedness ourselves, remember his wholehearted love for you. Remember his undivided loyalty to you. Remember his single-minded pursuit of you. Before we ever devoted to him, he has devoted himself to our good and our salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we turn to you this morning and we, we come to you with all that we are. And you do know us. You see right through us. There is no hiding with you. And Father, we don't want to live lives of double-mindedness, living on the fringe of things, being blown here and, here and there by every wind that comes across our path. We want to seek you. We want to know you. We want to live your way in the, in the face of trials, in the face of the temptations of wealth uh, in our society. We pray Father, strengthen our resolve, strengthen our hearts, strengthen our affections to you and give us a big vision of what you have done for us, how you have come after us, that in some small way our single-mindedness towards you might reflect your amazing single-mindedness towards us. Amen.